welcome to another episode of the Entrepreneur Sushi Club podcast. I am your host, Lupna, and for this episode, I'm flying solo. So Woon and Gail could not make it to this episode. So the Entrepreneur Sushi Club podcast is a weekly podcast where we give you insight into the personality of successful sushi-adoring entrepreneurs, showing you that success is all about having fun in and with your business without the hustle and the grinding. And today I have Rami, together with his wife Elizabeth, the owners of People Processes, a provider of integrated and automated HR processes. Rami and his team work with hundreds of companies across the United States, helping them learn how to stop pushing paper and start prioritizing people. Rami, welcome. Thank you, I'm very glad to be here. Oh, well, cool, cool. Let's start with the most important question of the podcast. What's your favorite sushi? I love eel rolls. So they call it eel sauce, which is like a sweet syrup that goes on top. Definitely my favorite. Why is that your favorite? You know, my first experience with sushi was my wife and I, who started this company together, actually started dating when I was 16. We've been together for almost 20 years now. Yeah. And this was 20 years ago. Sushi wasn't around. There was one place in all of the city that had sushi. And I'd never seen it outside of like weird movies in the 80s. <laughs> and my wife, one of our, I don't know, early dates, she was like, I want sushi. And so we went out to a sushi bar and they had the little boats coming along. And it was like $5 for two freaking rolls. And <laughs> I made my money by mowing lawns at the time. So it was like, oh my God, this is so expensive. But I loved it. And the eel roll was, you know, as a simple, I like more complex rolls now. And I love nigiri. I love just sushi, just fish now. But at the time, the California roll was too simple, right? It was like, uh, you're not supposed to like, love the California roll. So the eel roll was a slightly more exotic, but still pretty tame kind of roll. And I love it. And now I, it's still one of my favorites. Oh, how many times do you have sushi? Oh, we're a weekly, if not more often. Ooh. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, I mean, we have a client that does sushi. We have a great sushi restaurant, like a five-minute walk away. And they deliver. So, yeah, no, we have sushi way too often. Ooh, was it difficult to get sushi while in lockdown? No. Oh, God. Not at all. Really? Uh, actually, no, it's not true. They closed the restaurant for probably two or three weeks while they redid it and made it, you know, put in a big barrier up front, that kind of thing. But we could make it two or three weeks. But once it was back open, it was right back to normal. Yeah. <laughs> It's amazing because we've had guests before who said it was quite a challenge getting some sushi whilst in lockdown. Yeah. So I'm happy to hear that you didn't have that trouble, at least for a couple of weeks. Well, and we're on a river and there's a lot of international trade. So you can also go to the Asian food markets and buy sushi grade fish and make it at home, which we've done many times as well. Mm. So you can always get sushi here, even from oh, the grocery okay. store. Oh, that's awesome. One of the things that we're really interested in is if you, as a person, would be a sushi, what would the ingredients be? Oh gosh, these are some hard questions. You know, if I were a sushi, well, it'd be very hairy. I'm Arab, so I don't know. It, it wouldn't be a great sushi. It'd be a very strange one. I guess I could be white rice on the outside and lots of color on the inside. We'll go with that. So lots of veggies and probably a heavier or unusual meat on the inside. <laughs> And if your business, people, processes were a sushi, what would that be? Mm. It would be one of those 
giant fried monstrosities. You know, like in town, we call them like the Memphis rolls or they're always like the special dragon roll where it's, uh-huh. you know, tons of stuff and then it's wrapped again and then it's deep fried and they serve it in a boat and then they light it on fire. That's my business. It's a big old mouthful to swallow to try and wrap your head around all the pieces we handle, but it may be your favorite ever. Oh! Also, it's it, kind of expensive. Oh, you have to elaborate on that. What makes that sushi different? Why? So, I mean, you said it's difficult to swallow. I can imagine. I mean, if it's a roll and then a roll back and then deep fried and in a boat and there are so many layers, yeah. but you're going to love it. So tell us a little bit about what makes your business that mix and match. Sure. Thing. So, yeah. So in my industry, there are companies that do benefits insurance. There are companies that do payroll as a payroll processor. There are companies that come in and are like HR consultants and will write up your policies. And and there are analysts who come in and do survey work. And there's all these different things. With our company, we target smaller companies, companies that have fewer than say 125, 150 employees. Mm -hmm. And where we come in is we are a one-stop shop, or as one of my favorite clients early on in my career said, Rami, you're not one-stop shopping, you're one throat to choke. If there's anything wrong with many of my employees or my hiring or my benefits, I know who to find and I know where the problem is. And he's right. So with us, we wind up, when someone hires us, they really are hiring a team of seven or eight specialists from a tax specialist, systems engineers, benefits clerks, benefits consultants, HR clerks, HR seniors, HR compliance officers, there's graphic designers. They get all of that when they hire our company. And we are doing everything from videography down to writing out benefits communications. So it's hard to wrap your head around it. And one of the issues is, is that, you know, if a company is invested a lot in an internal structure, sometimes they don't need us, which is great. I wish them luck. And also when you start it's difficult for a three-man shop to be able to utilize all of that. It's more, you know, at a three-man shop, your job is to get more clients, Yeah. period. Yeah. And yes, there's an idea of scaling and there's the idea of getting things off your bucket as the business owner so that you can focus on growing your company. And that's all very true. But the investment in employee sentiment analysis probably isn't necessary when you got three people. You just ask everybody at lunch, hey, are y'all pissed at me? And they go, yeah, yeah figure it out, right? Yeah. It's the biggest thing on the menu. It's got a lot of different pieces to it and it's not the right fit for everybody. And it's definitely not the traditional or the norm because in our industry, these are normally a bunch of distinct different businesses. But yeah. from us, you get the whole thing. And there's a good yeah. bit of spectacular glim and glass to it too. So we like to wow our clients very much. So you'll see some of that yeah. lighted on fire stuff. I love that because what I found fascinating, I've worked for an HR department for about over two years. And I love in your introduction, you said, stop pushing paper and prioritizing people. Because right. it's a lot. And I had that experience when I was walking around on that HR department for over two years. I'm like, you're all into paper. The only thing that I see is uh, desks with paper stacked all over. And I'm thinking, yep. we're talking about people, for God's sake. We're talking about human beings with personalities, with quirks, with qualities. And what I'm seeing is forms. Right. Absolutely. How are you and different? Because you're very specific in you support companies to stop pushing paper and prioritizing people. Exactly. Well, there's the marketing answer and the real answer. So I'm going to just skip the marketing one and say paper. Well, 
real paper, like actual physical paper is not needed anymore, but documentation and the completion of these business processes around signing documents and approvals and all that is a necessary evil of business. And the bigger you get, the more necessary it is and the more evil it is. So where we come in is we have very strong expert staff who can automate or even take over that knuckleheaded stuff. So if you're a 30-man company or a 50-man company and you have a HR person who is also the office manager, who's also doing some of the accounts payable. She's supposed to be recruiting and like interviewing people and making sure you have things. And for some reason, she's also in charge of the special program and most of the office ordering. And a lot of them started by being the person who opened the mail and cleaned, like, but they grew into that role. That's a great asset to have. You need that person, but that person needs to be spending their day doing the things inside the business that create human connection, that influence culture. And so what we do is we come in and we take all of the repetitive knuckleheaded stuff, whereas before maybe she was spending 35 or 36 of her hours a week on rote repetitive approvals and designs and payroll and oh my God, timekeeping. And this person needs FMLA leave. We got to fill out the paper and go review the thing. We take all that off the desk, leaving that employee there to expand on culture, recruiting, what, why, and how they do what they do, employ conflict resolution. And we train them on those high level things that you want a person, a human who works for the organization to do and take all of the stuff that anybody who's experienced and can automate this stuff and has strong technology could handle. And so that's where we split up. Yeah. And do you do anything around that topic of human connection? Because in my mind, and I've both seen it in that HR department, as in, in all of the other jobs that I've had dealing with HR is it seems as if they've lost the mindset of I'm talking to another human being. Hmm. So yes and no, there are two things here. One is if you outsource, if you're hiring a company like mine, we cannot by definition have a strong personal relationship with your employees because we've been hired by you, the owner. And if we did, we would have a conflict of interest. So our job is to be the robotic side of it. Yeah. Your job is to make that personal connection. And we're going to tell you how to do it. The other part of it is to say, as a process-oriented human and process-oriented company, I believe that the structure that you put in place will inform how those personal relationships develop. So if you hire somebody and they receive a highly customized, highly, you know, a unique, personable, personal onboarding experience, they get, imagine you get hired and the first thing upon, you know, you get the call from the hire manager, say, yes, you got to check your email. You got a welcome email. And the first thing in there is a video from the CEO of the company saying, I'm so glad you've joined us. Here's why we do what we do. It's what gets us out of the bed in the morning. You're going to learn more about how the company works and your job in the next couple of weeks. But I just want to thank you for coming. And if you ever need anything, my door's open to you. And then they log in and they go through and they see videos from the primary heads of any departments, if it's a larger organization, or even if it's a smaller one, they at least see their direct connections. They see a video from their manager made after they were hired. They took out their phone and said, hey, Jenny, I'm so glad you're joining us. I am going to be your manager. We're going to get to know each other very well. I want to welcome you here. Here's how I got to where I am. And I can't wait to get to know you better. 
And then they're walked through how the company's laid out and they're walked through their benefits and all the regular onboarding stuff. Yeah. Yeah. By making that process driven, you've created a personal connection much faster every time. So processes let us make the steps we take better. That's the great thing about a process, right? You can improve it. Whereas if you just do it differently every time, who the heck knows? So people processes, they start off as we have to check the boxes. We get those box checking crap off of the HR person's desk and then put them in a system and teach them how to make each interaction with the company, which is an opportunity for the employee to either love or hate your company. Look at each one of these little pieces and go, how can we make it so that the employee would love us more so that they would come to me if there were a problem before they quit or mm. go to the you know, lawyer? Yeah. Uh, what are my goals in each one of these interactions and how do I make sure they love us for it? If an employee calls you up and goes, hey, I'm pregnant. I need to know about my maternity leave. Like, what is the experience they should have from that as opposed to it's in your employee handbook on page 128? Oh my God, I still remember the getting those answers. Yeah, look on the internet. Yeah, it's on the internet. It should be on the internet. Most You've got to have the documentation. But if it's automated and the employees understand it and are trained in it so quickly during onboarding and annual reviews and consistently, and the intranet is right there where they clock in or they request time off and it's the integral part of their system, then it's really not expected that those basic things come up. But when they do, say someone accesses or asks their manager about or puts in a request about, I think there's maternity. If all of the grunt work is already taken care of, if explaining the benefits is taken care of, if the paperwork around requesting a long-term leave of absence is there, if the approvals are all automated, and the HR department, instead of spending four hours getting this maternity leave all worked out, that just happens. Yeah. What can they spend those four hours doing that makes that employee come back from maternity? which is only like a 70% chance, right? So how do we make this worthwhile? What do we do here to invest that makes our other employees go, man, I love working at this place. Did you see what happened when Lubna was pregnant? So that's where we try to focus people. Yeah. So whilst you were talking, I was thinking, how do you support someone who has a culture of pushing paper instead of prioritizing people into making that transition because it's new you don't know what you don't know and i was reminded by your story when you said you were introduced to sushi through your wife how did she get you to taste sushi i know as a process person myself i'm thinking how are there any similarities between those two processes you know in many ways i was 16 my girlfriend now wife was 17. She's hot. I'm five foot six on a good day. She's <laughs> six foot two when she's lying about her height. Uh, she's very tall. And, you know, she wanted sushi and I wanted her. So it was a pretty easy choice. So I think I would just say that in any, any sort of persuasion is based around illustrating and showing the end result, right? What is the goal? What is the payoff? And that's where we come in. You're exactly right. A lot of times we're brought in by business owners, yeah. especially in your, you know, your 60, 70, 80 man companies. Yeah. Yeah. And there's already some HR staff. There's a CFO at least, and maybe there's a HR person, one. Yeah. And they're saying, but my job is to process the payroll. That's what I do three days a week. Yeah. And I'm saying it should take you five and a half minutes, yeah. right? When it's crazy, let's budget 10, but let's get that out. 
So what you have to do is paint the picture for them of what they're going to be able to do and to the business owner or board about why you want this person who's an office manager or HR person who's, who was doing repetitive tasks. What is the return on investment? What is the net result of this? And what you'll often find even in a 50 or 60 man company is that there is nearly no one or no one who's actually dedicated 70, 80% of the time to improving your return on labor, which is how I put it. The HR person, you know, if you want to go all Machiavellian and like, they're not here to help people, they're here, labor is your biggest expense. You spend a million dollars a year on labor. If you can spend 50,000 on an HR person and that million dollars of labor will be worth 1.2 million or 1.5 million, HR is a labor multiplier, or it should be. It should not be a constriction. It should not be a thing that labor goes to die. The person who's running HR should be focused every day on how do we make every dollar we spend on labor go further? And the answer normally is employees stick around longer. They're easier to recruit. They're better trained. They have higher morale. They're more engaged. And any small movement on any of those, if you can take the average time that an employee works from you from 3.2 years to 4.5 years, you've lowered your labor costs by something like 20%. Wow. It's huge. If you can increase engagement so that an employee will catch an error once a week that they wouldn't have otherwise done, you've increased the quality of your product by a huge margin. I mean, just a different company level of margin. So if your HR department is instead this processing department, this data entry department, and you look at your 50-man company or your 30-man company, and you look around and say, I spent all this money on labor. I got this one person who's supposed to be making sure the labor doesn't sue me, basically, right? Fills out the paperwork. Yeah. How much would you get out of having someone who was highly dedicated to making the labor go further? That's where we want to go in. Yeah. I love that because one of the things that I'm also passionate about and I've studied intensity and still do is the science of happiness at work. And of the many conversations that I've had with CEOs, managers, even employees, but also HR people is the business case. If you invest in the happiness of your people, which translates into higher productivity, more creativity. I mean, it even reduces sick leave and absenteeism massively and there are hard numbers as in there is a very good business case so bad but still i found a lot of managers and employees even i'm not going to talk about happiness that's too soft right i really resonate with what you said as in hr should make that transition from being a process driven paper pushing department to be really blunt about it yeah someone who knows who has the knowledge the expertise to influence both employees as well as managers into thinking in terms of okay how can i get more out of people Mm -hmm. whether that is more productivity more performance or whatever it may be for you because that translates into business results right And there are different things than the processes of the transactional HR typing data entry block. Right. (laughs) And a lot of times in a 30-man company, you don't have to do everything. Like a lot of those, you don't have to scale everything. It's another thing that a lot of small business owners get wrong. I'm a process-driven person. 
the things that are process driven, you got to make them and most things should be. But in a 30 man company, your HR person has an hour per week for 30 employees and another 10 hours to take care of other stuff. Yeah. So they can do non-scaling activities. Even in an 80 man company, they have 30 minutes per employee. That's a lot. That's an hour every two weeks. And it's not that they're going to go in there and sit around with them, but when they go, I don't have time to help our managers set goals. Or, you know, one of our employees is sick and, you know, I've got so much paperwork to do that I don't have time to arrange a company card to go out and thank them or to call up their husband or wife and ask how they're doing. Like those sorts of actions are going to lower your turnover by 40%. Why would you not do that? Because they go, that's not my, you know, I know I should do that. Or maybe if I had the time, but I got too much real work to do. And the real work is actually that it's the non-scaling activities. The scaling activities are the things that you can automate or outsource and get off your plate and have your non-scaling activities be the focus of your person. The other thing is, again, you would want to work with your automation systems or your outsourcing to improve over time the quality and effect of those process-driven things. Like I mentioned, onboarding is a great example of something that should be highly process-driven, but also have huge impact and be highly custom. And it doesn't take long. Most people spend eight to 12 hours onboarding a new employee from a compliance and training perspective of non-skill specific stuff. So you hire somebody, I'm not talking about training them on how to be a mechanic, but just to get them through the paperwork, through the knowing where the bathrooms are, how to take time off, how to clock in and out, who do I go to, who's my manager, it's normally a day and a half. Some people it's a whole day. Not learning anything about how to work on a car, but just that part. If you can take that onboarding experience and in that day and a half that you're gonna spend of labor on that person, not to mention you're spending manager time teaching them, HR time training them, paperwork process, blah, blah, blah. If you can automate a large portion of that and have most of it done before they even start with you, how much time can you invest in building a better system? That's the thing. And each time you hire somebody, if all you had to do was spend 30 minutes or an hour walking around with your freaking phone and find their manager and say, Jenny's starting with you, tell them about yourself. And then the HR person does the same and then go find the darn company owner. Even in a hundred man shop, you're not hiring you're hiring five people a month if you have high turnover. 100-man shop, five people a month means 60% of your staff leaves every year. Probably not hiring that many. That's one a week. Have the HR manager go up to the CEO and say, we got a new person starting in fulfillment. They're going to stuff boxes. Thank them for joining us. It'll take you five minutes and you put it in your onboarding system. And now you've made a huge impact with 30 minutes of work. Yeah. If you were to wave a magic wand, a magic sushi wand, and propel us into the future, what would the ideal situation be if everything was possible? For a business, for me, for the world? Whatever you want to share. Okay. If the future were utopian, I would hope that people would recognize how very much they can improve in their own lives through diligence and hard work and... Also, I would hope that the whole, all of those people who are, who, who make that realization would also realize that it takes time mm. and that going to the gym for three weeks doesn't change you and having a new habit for three months isn't there, that, that humans move on year long time spans. So 
I want them to have both. If most of the world had the true belief that they could improve their own lot and through hard work and the patience to actually execute on it, I think that pretty much do it. We just need people to behave better. Interesting, very interesting. And for those people that are listening right now and thinking, but can you give us some specific tips and tricks if, if I'm in that phase of, okay, I want to make that transition, what do I do? Well, it's all going to depend a lot on your size. So let's say you're a solopreneur, okay, that you're hiring your first employee. Let's go there first. Mm-hmm. If this is your first employee, I want you to scale back. Here's the first thing I want to tell you you're not going to hire you. So this goes to, in the HR world, we call it job analysis. Oh, This is the term, job analysis. Before you do a job description or a job advertisement or an interview around a job, you first do a job analysis. Job analysis in a large company is going to people in that job, asking them what they do, what skills they need, and why they're good at it or why they'd be bad at it and what they think someone... should mm-hmm. ask. You as the business owner don't have to know what would make a good mechanic. You can go ask mechanics, get the info. As an HR person, you may not know what makes a good Fortran computer programmer for your credit union. Who the hell knows? Go ask them. That's job analysis. As a small business person or a solopreneur, you don't know yet. You have no idea who is going to make an excellent salesperson, who's going to make an excellent operations fulfillment, whatever it is you do. Maybe you're a coach and you need someone to do your, no idea. So you can't do job analysis. So what I want you to do is scale the job very small. I want you to find what I call your minimum viable job and hire for that. It's not what most people will tell you. They'll say your job is to find the best and the brightest who's going to, you know, help you. Your first hire is so important and it is. But the likelihood of you finding a Lubna who loves and grows and is, whether they're like you or not, has a tenth of your talent and skill yeah. is very low. Yeah. And if they had your talent and skill, guess what? They wouldn't work for you. No. But you don't know crap about employing anybody. You've never done it. They'd go work for Microsoft. Okay. So what you're going to do is I want you to look at your dry erase board and you better have a dry erase board. I guess you can do it digitally. Lay out your name at the top and lay out all the jobs that you're doing right now. Marketing, sales, operations, finances, whatever it is. And you've got an idea in the back of your head of what you want to hire. You go, I sure need someone who's going to help me with blank. Write that alone and then break that job down even. Say, all right, I need a mechanic. What do you need a mechanic? You need a mechanic who repairs cars or do you need a mechanic who does transmissions and engine repair, or do you need a mechanic who does brakes or oil changes or whatever it is? Narrow it down and look for what you think would take up around 20 to 25 hours a week, not 40, 20 to 25 hours a week, okay? Because it's going to take longer for them than you by a lot. And it's going to take them a while to grow into it. Now, a year from now, they're going to do it better than you and faster than you. But when they start, it's going to take a lot. Also, always dedicate at least 20% of your work week to training and improvement, especially in new hires and young hires, which assuming you're a solopreneur, your first hire is probably going to be not someone with 50 years of experience or 30. Probably not. So you're going to need to dedicate time training. So you're going to find someone who can do 20 to 25 hours of a job, break it down as simple as it can. And I say, all right, 
if I had someone who would come in and in my company, sort the bookkeeping transactions, that's an hour a day, pay the bills, register the bills, send out invoices, and they would do that. And that's four hours a day. Those are my four job things. Now, what I really need is someone who's going to do that and financial reporting and also let my clients know when their renewals are coming up and keep track of when benefits renew. I need all these things, but just that, that's my minimum viable job and figure out for that very simple job, how much you could pay. Okay. And if you can't pay someone enough to do that very simple job, first of all, it takes a lot of this. I need to hire somebody for $35 an hour, simple job, very simple. Your first hire should be close to minimum wage. Some industries are different. If you're a doctor's office, your first hire is not going to be minimum wage, but you get what I'm saying. Minimize this complexity. And then you have already figured out what is it by having a minimum viable job, you have the four things you need them to do. You already know what the goal of the position is. You already know what break even is that this very minimal amount. And from there you can build on it. You can say, all right, did they do those four things? Yes or no. Did they do those four things? Yes or no. If they said yes, great. If they could do one more thing, could we afford to pay them a little bit more? Could we afford to give them more hours and move that position slowly up? That's your solopreneur trap. The mistake I see the most is I need a sales guy or gal. And what would I like them to do? Well, I'd like them to know everything we do. I'd like them to prospect. I'd like them to follow it up in a CRM. I'd like them to make the proposals. I'd like them to price all of the stuff because they should know how to price. And I'd also like them to do the implementation because once they sell them, I mean, they got to stay that relationship. You've just talked about like 12 jobs. You can't hire anybody who could do that. And if they could do all that, they'd just have your job. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. Would you say these tips also apply for, for example, I'm a solopreneur and if I don't want to necessarily hire someone on the payroll of my business, I just want to outsource like a virtual assistant or that type of, do these tips apply to those types of hires too? Even more so. With VAs, the narrower the job, the easier it is to tell if there is success or failure. And in business, whatever you do, whenever you spend money, you have to know, you have to be able to judge, was this a good use of money? Yeah. Or time, right? If you don't have testing involved in whatever you do, or a goal, another way to put that, then you're wasting your money. Yeah. So the narrower you define the job, the easier it is to tell whether they're succeeding at that job, whether you made the right decision, whether they're doing a good job. And the easier it is to tell whether they're ready for more. Mm. If you look at large successful businesses, they say simplicity scales, complexity fails. That's an old Silicon Valley saying. Go into the largest businesses in your area. The vast majority of employees are doing these. My job is to stock shelves. I move from this room to this room and I put it in. At McDonald's, you don't even have a cook you have a fry cook, you have a burger flipper and a burger assembler. Yeah. The simpler the job, the easier it is to judge performance and to scale and to hire and the cheaper you can pay. Yeah. Another thing that I see on small businesses, and this also applies to three and five and 10 man companies, they have a tendency to, if they're going to hire that jack of all trades, or they think they need a generalist, especially in very small business, it leads to one of the common deaths of business, which is that an employee becomes your competitor. Oh yeah. So in a small business, the intellectual property, the thing that makes your business unique is all up here in your head. 
And your job as a business owner is to scale and bring in people to do those pieces. But if you're first through 10th or 20th hire, if one of those hires is, here's everything, do everything, you have just said, be my competitor. Yeah. And people do it all the time. Yeah. And they should. Because yeah. you just said, I just want you to run my business for me. And they said, exactly. but you only yeah. pay me 40000 a year, so I'm going to go on my own. Exactly. Yeah. But to be fair, that is what happens. I mean, if you have everything, then why not do it yourself if you can make right. it faster instead of listening to someone who just gave them, you gave them all your business. I mean, why would they? Right. So simple jobs also allow the entrepreneurial premium. The thing that you're paid for is the organization of these labor and systems. And when you have simple pieces that you're putting in place, much more of the pie gets to come to you as the organizer. Yeah. Every time you add a layer of management, every time you add a group that just does everything, you're giving up a larger chunk of your pie. And they should because someone else is using their entrepreneurial skills to manage those things. Yeah. Okay, cool. Rami, I've had a lot of fun. I mean, it's been very, very educational to be fair. <laughs> we should have talked more sushi, huh? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But whatever happens, happens on the Entrepreneur Sushi Club podcast. We talk in flow and whatever comes out of our mouths is what comes out of our mouths. And we talked about sushi. I mean, I know you would be as a sushi, your company would be as a sushi. I know how you started on your sushi journey. I should thank your wife, Elizabeth, for introducing you 20 years ago, I believe you said. So I really love it. Do you want to share something to wrap this up? Well, if any of you are US-based, the by my book, People Processes, you can find on Amazon. It's on amazon.co.uk. It's on the Netherlands. It's in Japan. It was an Amazon bestseller in the HR department. It's got universally applicable principles, and it's like 20 bucks, or yeah. I think the paperback's like 12. Go buy it. You can just Amazon People Processes. Yeah. If you're in the US and you're interested in having someone come in and maybe do an audit, take a look at your organization, even just an hour-long kind of strategic call to see if we'd be a fit, to see if you'd like somebody to come in and take the knuckleheaded stuff off your desk and give you a track to run on to improve the actual experience of your people. I'd love to help. You can find us at peopleprocesses.com. Right on the front, there is a sign up button. You can drop that there. That'll subscribe you to our podcast and you can contact us using the live chat in the bottom right to ask any questions. Okay, cool. For those of you who are listening and thinking that went really fast, we will be adding the link to the website in the description with this. Peopleprocesses.com. You got it. <laughs> so you don't have to remember it. Or if you're driving right now, listening to this podcast, this episode, you're thinking, oh my God, I just forgot. It's in the description with this episode. Rami, thank you. Thank you. For gracing us with your time and your wisdom on HR. It's been fun. And for those of you that are listening, thank you for listening to another episode of the Entrepreneur Sushi Club podcast. We would love to know what has been your biggest takeaway from this conversation. Do take a moment and share it with us in our Facebook group, the Entrepreneur Sushi Club. Uh, You will find the link with the description with this episode. And if you know someone who will benefit from listening to this episode, please share it with them. Thank you. And we are looking forward to seeing you on the next episode.